0: Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. It's your girl, Emily Aries, and welcome to episode 118. I first have to give a huge shout out to all the badass boss ladies who joined me in the Big Apple this past weekend for Bossed Up Boot Camp. It was incredible to see how many women who attended Boot Camp this weekend are avid Bossed Up Podcast listeners. So I have to give y'all a special shout out and thank you for joining me at our last boot camp before the Bossed Up Book Tour kicks off next month and reminding me just how special the Bossed Up Bootcamp weekend is. There's a reason why Bossed Up Bootcamp was the start of it all. And in so many ways, it feels like coming home to the program I needed not that long ago. I think the program we all need every couple of years when it's time to bring ourselves in for a tune-up on life and career and spending a dedicated weekend in a community of courage in person, working on ourselves, clarifying our vision for what's next, figuring out an action plan for getting there and being f-ing audacious about it. I had such an incredible time working with each and every one of you, some of whom flew in from California to join us in New York, one incredible woman, Mariana, who flew in all the way from Berlin for a special New York City weekend at Boot Bootcamp. And I just cannot tell you all how much I appreciate how You showed up with open hearts, open minds, and such love for one another. It really reminds me that this virtual pod squad we have here, you know, as podcaster and as this community of Bossed Up podcast listeners is so powerful, is so real. And I cannot wait to meet more of you on the road for the Bossed Up Book Tour. I'm going to tell you what I told everyone at Bossed Up Bootcamp this weekend, which is the Bossed Up Book Tour is really just about full, except for three cities where I have one spot. Spot left for a midday event, and I'm waiving my speakers' fees to do lunch and learn style author chats, keynotes, and workshops at companies and organizations with women's initiatives that would be interested in bringing me in without having to pay any speakers' fees. And I can get you all steeply discounted copies of the Boss book for all your attendees and employees. I'm already booked at some really incredible places for these lunch and learn style or morning breakfast talks at Facebook, in Palo Alto, at Google, in New York City, and there are three cities left where I have availability. One is New York, so my New York City bosses, let me know if I can team up with you and your crew. The others are Los Angeles and San Francisco. So if you work for an organization that you think could use a little boss up, let me know, shoot me an email at org, and I can send you more details on what that might look like. And I just want to extend my deepest gratitude once more to all the amazing women who joined us at Bossed Up Bootcamp this weekend, who reminded me of why I started this organization to begin with and how we all benefit from being together in community. I can't wait for our next Bossed Up Bootcamp coming up in July in Chicago. I'll tell you more about it as the date approaches, but I just want to say how much I appreciate you as listeners and those of you who show up IRL. I can't wait to meet more of you. So let's dive into today's really interesting episode. I'm so excited for you to meet today's guest, Wade Davis, the former NFL player, thought leader, writer, public speaker, and educator who talks a lot about gender race, and orientation equality. He's a proud feminist. He's the second guy I've ever had on this podcast. And I'm so excited. Actually, third, if you count Brad the Boo. But he is a real delight to talk with, someone who's constantly enlightening me and has a lot to share and some really great insights when it comes to modeling how men can be involved in this quest for gender equality. Because frankly, that's a question I've often wondered about in these past few months, in these past few years, really, of working on Bossed Up since 2013, because I want to see more men get actively involved in feminist dialogue and feminist conversation, which is something I, I don't think we talk enough about, to be honest. I had the pleasure and opportunity to work with LinkedIn Learning, the online learning platform that LinkedIn offers, when a few months ago, I worked with their producers to develop an online course all about how to become a male ally in the quest for gender equality. I am so proud of how the course came out, and you can actually access it for free with a limited trial via the link in today's show notes. Because we came out with a really clear step-by-step actionable course for men who want to get more involved in being everyday activists. I'm not talking, you know, starting organizations or leading marches. I'm talking about the everyday actions that men can take in their workplaces to contribute to gender equality. If you know someone who'd be interested in that, make sure to share this course with them now. Again, the link will be in today's show notes because it's been so great to see the early feedback we've gotten, the online comments that we're getting from men who found the course really enlightening, simple, and actionable, which is always my goal, is to really create a clear pathway to engagement. Now, my conversation with Wade can actually take that conversation a step further Because Wade offers up some really actionable advice and some really interesting and enlightening perspectives on how we even talk about men's involvement in gender equality. So let's jump right into my conversation with the former NFL player, Wade Davis, who's a thought leader, public speaker, and consultant on gender, race, and orientation equality. He became the first LGBT inclusion consultant for the NFL and currently consults for numerous professional sports leagues on issues at the intersection of sexism, racism, and homophobia. Wade creates league-wide inclusive leadership strategies, leads inclusion training sessions for coaches and players, and builds and launches national engagement initiatives. Beyond the world of sports, Wade's also consulting and advising at companies like Netflix, Google, 21st Century Fox, Viacom, and more to co-create transformative solutions and build inclusive corporate cultures. Wade, welcome to the Boss Up Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So Wade Davis, my first question for you is how did you find yourself in this line of work focusing on gender inclusion and all kinds of intersectional forms of inclusion as it relates to sports and beyond?
1: Yeah, you know, it actually started with sports. So when I first told the world that I was gay, I was doing work in the sports world, whether it was the NFL, the NHL or CFL around LGBT equality. But I was reading for the first time, like a literature Feminist's work. And as I read more and more, I was like, well, wait a minute. It seems like the root of homophobia is sexism. You know, right. and, and it was something that I had never really interrogated, you know, that it was something that I think I knew subconsciously, but never something that I made a conscious thought. And yeah. then I was reading a lot of bell hooks at that point. And I realized that if I wanted to do work that was truly at the root or at the core of what the problem is, it had to be gender. So I was like, I'm not going to really talk about LGBT inclusion anymore unless it's about trans women or lesbians. And it's not going to center around gay men. And to be also transparent, I found us as gay men very sexist, too, you know. And I was like, well, clearly the root has got to be around gender. So I literally just started to talk only around that. And I found a bunch of specifically like Men going like, why do you care about this issue? Like they really couldn't understand like why I care. And then I would tell them, and they would go, "I'm not sure that that's true. I'm not sure that's true." And I was like, "All right, well, it's okay, right? But it's the work that I think is towards a group that is more marginalized than me, right? That as a gay man, that yes, like I deal with homophobia, but it felt different than when I would work with trans folks. It felt different than when I would talk about gender. I knew that I could be marginalized for being gay, but the weight Felt different when I talk to women and trans folks.
0: Yeah, I always find this a really challenging road to walk down when you're really focused on being as intersectional in your feminism as possible. I run into the risk of comparing wounds.
1: Yeah. Right? An oppression Olympics almost. (laughs)
0: Exactly. And it's like, Being committed to focusing on one marginalized group at a time doesn't mean those other things don't matter. And sometimes I think people have a real problem (laughs) getting that. Like, we can talk about women and still care about gay men's oppression too. And it's not one or the other, right? You can be a multifaceted, multi passionate advocate. But it's interesting that you make that connection between homophobia and gender. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like, how is homophobia rooted in sexism?
1: Yeah. So, when you think about oftentimes the ways that You know that gay men specifically are talked about it is through this lens of being weak being less than that we're committing acts that only women should be doing right which was a real thread that i was like oh like clearly the reason why We hate gay men is because we think that they're acting like women. And if you're acting like a woman, then clearly that's a bad thing for a man to do. And and my first thought was actually, no, you know, there isn't one way to be a man. There isn't one way to be a woman. So clearly this hatred of gay men is rooted in sexism. And specifically, you know, for me as a quote, a straight acting gay man, right? there would be so many of my friends who would say you're gay, but you don't act like a fat. Right, Mm -hmm. which again, even reaffirms this idea that as long as you're performing a certain form of normalized uh, masculinity, then you're okay. But if you start to do anything that looks, feels, smells like something that women should be doing, then it becomes problematic. And it was just like a light bulb went off. I was like, oh yeah, like this is the actual issue. And you know, when gay men specifically, or people say, well, don't you still care about LGBT equality? The thing that I learned from feminism is that if you start with the group that's the most marginalized, right, and oftentimes it is trans women of color and you work your way up, you get everybody, right? But if your advocacy starts with, let's say, gay men who still have a privilege of being male, right, and you work your way up from from there, you're missing everyone else. So I always try to, to think about which group has the smallest voice, is the furthest away from power, Right. How can I spend my social capital, my privilege to advocate on their behalfs and trust that I will that at some point the law changes will impact me, too. Right. And I think if you think about the same sex marriage movement, right, it was a very privileged movement, like to be able to get married is a thing that's important, but it's something of, of a certain level of privilege. And if you think about the ways that trans folks are still being marginalized, the power, the energy, the money specifically that went towards same-sex marriage, there's a fraction of that that goes towards trans equality, which speaks to, right, that one group thought that, hey, this was important to me, but making sure that trans women don't have a life expectancy of 35 years old, it's something that, yeah, it's awful, right? But the energy is not there. And I didn't want to be a part of a movement that was leaving behind so many of our trans brothers and sisters.
0: Yeah, especially when we're comparing the right to marry versus the right to exist, right? And be safe. <laughs> and to to be free from violence and, you know, exponentially higher rates of harassment, not to mention brutality. So that's a really excellent point. I love how you just described your take on allyship, which was my next question for you. Like, what does it actually look like to be an active ally in this framework you just described of who's the furthest away from power? I think it's a really great inclusive visual to use for how you can do the most good with the capital that you have, social, political, financial, whatever. What would it look like for more men in particular to be active allies in the quest for gender equality?
1: So I want to say something that people won't like. So I actually don't like the term ally because I think it connotes that the ally is not benefiting also, right? Mm. So if you create a world that is more equal and equitable for trans women of color, it's going to impact everyone else too, right? So I benefit too, you know? So what I like to think about is, you know, how do I stand in solidarity with, right? Which is a very different idea, right? That, that, That actually says that, hey, I'm walking with you. I'm benefiting too, and I think that the term ally connotes that, one, other people don't have agency, don't have power. It's also why I hate terms like empowerment movements, like a women's empowerment yeah. movement. I'm like, actually, women do have power, so, so they don't need to be empowered. What they need is for the barriers that they're facing to be removed so that they can exert the power that they already have. So I like to say like, that I am not an ally for anyone. I'm actually walking in solidarity because there is a tangible benefit that I get also. And what solidarity movement looks oftentimes like is me making the issue of someone who is trans or or a woman whatever become personal to me. Right. And when you make things personal, when you understand that you benefit also, it's not something that you can opt out of. Right. It's not something that I can go. It's Tuesday. I did my allyship for women on Monday. I'm going to take, you know, Tuesday off. Right. But I know that I can't take the day off because I'm winning, I'm benefiting also. And I think if we can start to shift our language and go, no, I'm not an ally, I'm a solidarity partner, right? Like this world that is equal and equitable will always benefit all of us. It's not just going to benefit women. It's not just going to benefit trans folks.
0: I love that. You're reminding me of this quote from Audre Lorde, who I love to quote. (laughs) She's got a lot of great quotes, but she once said, I'm not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. And just linking what women run into when God forbid we violate gender expectations to the same kind of grief that men get for violating masculinity's expectation is a really interesting way to look at this. What's the argument to men who look at the Me Too movement, who look at the Time's Up movement, who see all of these employee resource groups popping up about (laughs) gender in the workplace and say, yikes, I feel under attack. I feel like my piece of the pie is becoming a little sliced, a little more narrowly, what's in it for me to be a part of this movement? Like, how do you make that case to the the reticent dude who doesn't see himself in this movement?
1: So the one thing I try to, to do with men is ask them better questions. And that may seem very simple, but oftentimes when you're trying to, let's use the parlance of the hour, change hearts and minds, what you're often trying to do is convince someone to think the way that you do. I right. take a different approach, right? I try to understand what the fear is underneath, mm-hmm. right? So that once I have a better understanding of what your fear is, I can now make a direct connection to go, hey, here's where your fear is, but here's how you benefit in a world that is more equitable and equal. Then folks go, oh, I didn't know that. Unless I take the time to understand like what your history is, what yeah. your fear is, all of those actual things, I can't help you see how this is beneficial to you as well, because when you talk to most men, what they don't see is how something's in it for them. And then they feel like, well, something's gonna be taken away from me. As if there's this zero sum calculus that says, when women can have the right to vote, men didn't have right to vote. No, like when, you know, pre the suffrage movement, men could vote, now women can vote. Oh, I haven't lost my right to vote either, right? Now what is true, right, is your vote may not carry the same weight as it used to, the question is, were you okay with women not having the right to vote, right? And when you ask folks questions, no one's going to say, I'm happy when women didn't vote, right? They go, yeah, And like, you know, that should be a right. And then you, you go, so has your vote changed? And you go, no, I can still vote. And then you, you go, so help me understand more about what is your fear around women having equal pay around women having the right to move up in an organization at the same rate as you do, right? And yeah. what men will actually say, if you handle them with a little bit of grace, they will say, well, what's true is that they're gonna have to work harder." Yeah. Right? Whereas yeah. previously, maybe they only had to run 10 set of stairs in order to make it to a, to a CEO, or whatever. Now, maybe you have to run 12 sets of stairs, right? Now, the question is, were you okay when you only had to run 10 whereas women couldn't run at all. Yeah. And then just asking those questions, people get to actually self-reflect and they can now go, you know what? You're right. Like, I don't want to live in a world where I have an easy path and someone else doesn't have a path at all. So you allow them to actually, you know, change their own heart and mind by just taking them on a journey, by being hyper curious, by being open to the idea that what they may say can actually help you understand who they are and make your work better. And what's what's true is that when I've approached men with a level of curiosity, they've made my work better because I have a better understanding of what their fear is.
0: It just goes to show us and reminds me really of the work I started my career in, which was grassroots organizing, that social movements really happen one conversation at a time. It's like, one interaction, one door knock, one phone call, one, you know, calling out someone or calling in someone if they're making a comment that strikes you as really sexist. It's really incumbent upon all of us to have those conversations with that level of curiosity and openness in order to make us better understand one another. But it's a hard thing to do in in this era that we live in.
1: It is really hard and it's exhausting, right? I also want to own, right, is that It's why the work of solidarity partners is important because I don't think it's incumbent on women to be having these conversations with every man. Right. It takes individuals like myself who go, all right, you know, you have done all of the labor to educate me on all of the issues that you face. Now I'm going to actually start to do my part of the work and actually say, hey, You need to, you know, take be comfortable taking a step back and trusting that I, as your partner, am going to do the rest of the labor and report back to you Mm -hmm. and say, hey, here's what I'm learning. Here's what I'm what what I'm thinking. Am I missing anything here? Right. Because what I don't want people to think is that it's always up on the oppressed group to do all of the actual labor when you've done it already. You know, like what is very clear to me is that there was a canon of knowledge that women had written about, that I knew nothing about, that most men know nothing about, that if I had have just read it, I would have had a better analysis of what it meant to be a woman living in this world, right? Once I read that, I was like, oh shit, I didn't know anything, right? Now it's my responsibility and now go, you've educated me, let me go try to educate someone else and not go, well, hey, Emily, like you taught me this, but you go talk to this guy also. No, it's like I can do some of yeah. the labor also. And I don't get the opportunity to opt out though. Like that's the key is that if you're going to be a true partner, right? I don't get a chance to say I'm tired today, you know, because like if we're always tired, then the work truly never gets done. And the last thing that I'll say is that Men actually want to have these conversations. Right. It's shocking that that's a true statement, but they do. The question is, is can we provide them enough space that because they may not be, and I hate this word, woke as I am, when they show up as imperfectly, do I have the grace to give them the space to learn and grow? Because someone gave that type of grace To me, Right. Like I didn't show up having known who Audre Lorde and Gloria Steinem and I didn't know any of them at all. And someone was like, hey, you're an idiot. Go read that. No, no. (laughs) Read it again because you don't get it still. You know, so can we give others that grace? Because the work means that no one's disposable. Like no one can be thrown away. And that's hard sometimes when your pain is is at the surface right? So those of us whose pain is not so at the surface, maybe can take on the extra labor of going, I got this person who's going to take a little bit more time and effort.
0: Yeah. It's funny because I feel like we've seen that happen in really public kind of celebrity ways, not just when it comes to gender, but also in race in particular. I'm thinking of Kanye West had a very public commentary at one point on race in America. And I believe it was John Legend who like reached out to him. (laughs) texted him, called him in and said, I got this one. Like, let's talk about this. And that's the kind of work that I think is such a great example of, you know, we can't ask women who are constantly dealing with microaggressions or women of color or trans women who are constantly on the receiving end of such microaggressions, which add to your stress, which set you up to burn out to constantly be doing the labor. So one of the things I'm hearing from your commentary here is that the women in our in our podcast community can absolutely expect and ask men in our lives to go handle it (laughs) call that person in for us you know take one for the team
1: and hopefully like you don't even have to ask like we already know like we're present we're watching like being in solidarity means that there's never a moment where i get to go oh i'm not paying attention anymore yeah you know so it shouldn't always take you calling me up and going hey wait this stuff is happening, like what are you right. gonna do, right? You know, and a friend of mine, his name is Juan Ramos, he said this, he, he said that men should be on one day contracts. Meaning that my advocacy towards gender equality on Monday, I don't get a credit going into Tuesday, right? right. Like, I, like my credit goes back to zero on Tuesday and go, hey, what are you doing today, Wade? You know, yeah. and on Wednesday, up, you're back to, to zero. And I think that that's the level of accountability that we have to expect. When you're trying to be a solidarity partner with someone else who is more marginalized than you are.
0: Yeah. One of the things I've observed in my experience is that a lot of men, especially in heterosexual relationships, are not there, are not even close to there. And so a lot of times I find myself talking to the women in the Bossed Up community saying, how do we get men from zero to 60, you know? And that grace is such an important component of it, but it's kind of like I think back to love languages and asking for the kind of love that you need. It doesn't cheapen it if you ask for the kind of solidarity that you expect, sometimes we have to invite men into this conversation and give them permission to be imperfect and explicitly invite them back in over and over again. And like you said, no one's disposable. I cringe when I see people on Twitter say, oh, this person is trash, like they are unforgivable. <laughs> and I get it. It's easy to feel that way in our dumpster fire of social media <laughs> on occasion, but. I really don't want to live in a world, you know, where we label people permanently as impossible for evolution, you know, and see them no longer as on this journey.
1: I agree with you. And the reason why that scares me so much is that at some point it's going to get me right. Like I'm never like, it's going (gasps) to come to you, right. There's always going to be a shadow spot where we don't recognize something. And if there's not a faith and trust that I'm open to growing But we all are on a journey like there isn't one person who we can say they got it. Right. Even James Baldwin, who I love, had to be called in by Audre Lorde and Toni Morrison and like even the greats. Right. Right. Like always have their shadow spots where they're missing something. Right. Mm So are we going to dispose of them, too? Yeah. You know, like if tomorrow Ava DuVernay says one thing wrong, like, are we going to dispose of our Shiro? No. Right. So and who gets to say who gets to be disposed of of, of also? I think the disposal kind of culture comes from this belief that people aren't doing the work. Right. So so people go, well, you're not doing the work to educate yourself. You never will do it. So I'm not even going to take the time to invest in you. And I can understand that intellectually. Right. But before I took this job at the Hedrick Martin Institute back in, like, 2010, I could have easily been disposed of because I was an idiot, you know? I mean, like, I was the type of guy that called women sweetie, you know what right. I mean? Like, you know, like, that level of an absence of an analysis or even an absence of a curiosity. Right. right? So, And it takes different flashpoints for some of us to wake up, for lack yeah. of a better way to say it.
0: I mean, if only we could be born with bell hooks already in our brains, we'd be all a lot better off, but it doesn't work that way. (laughs) So I guess one other question I have for you is specifically around gender as it intersects with being Black in America. How does this conversation around femininity, masculinity, gender roles, and sexism become specific or more complex when you're looking at this in terms of the African-American community? How does your message change there? Does it? And what do you wish more white folks knew about the intersection of race and gender?
1: I would say <laughs> the first thing, right, is that people need to know who Kimberly Crenshaw is and Emma de and Reed is, right? Cool. If you know the root of the term intersectionality, how it is rooted in the oppression of black women at the intersection yep. of race and gender, because what I know that whenever I get asked to go speak about the intersectionality conversation, I always start with Emma de and, and I ask the audience if they know what the term intersectionality, like, have they heard of it? And everyone goes, sure. And then I go, okay, keep your hands up if you've heard of Kimberly Crenshaw. About a third of the hands go down. And then I go, do you know who Emma de is? Damn near 90% of the hands go down. The only ones that are left up are also by black women, right? So it speaks to another form of us in making invisible the labor of black women, the struggle of black women. So I always start the conversation there and go: you may see yourself as an ally or a solidarity partner, but right. you're not because you're participating in the further erasure of the labor of black women.
0: Yeah, I have to call myself in for a second because I need a primer on that third name. Who's Who's Emma? Can you brief us on this? Yeah,
1: so Emma DeGraffery De is the woman that Kimberly Crenshaw was advocating on behalf okay, because okay. she sued the Ford Motor Ford Company Motor on the basis of sexism and racism. Right, and okay, what the right. judge said was that she would be getting preferential treatment if she could sue on the basis of both, right? right and right, what right. world do we live in Have we ever lived in where black women get preferential treatment? Never. And I think that the challenge for us as movement workers, right, is to not further marginalize and invisibilize the labor of black women because they are the most disrespected, you know, unloved, uneverything group of people in this country. So to have the the discussion with white folks, you actually have to talk about anti-blackness, which is a very different conversation than to talk about racism. Right, mm-hmm. because racism can happen towards Asian folks, towards Latin folks, but anti-blackness is a very different type of hatred, fear, discomfort, all of those things. So, and I don't like to give advice to other groups groups of people, but my advice for all of us, right, is to can you do the emotional labor, as Brittany Cooper says, to search yourself and go, where am I complicit mm. in the oppression of someone else? Right. Because what is true is that even though I am a man who advocates on behalf of so many different groups, I am still benefiting from their oppression, right? I've got to search my soul and go, where are the places that I benefit from sexism? Where are the places that I benefit from a certain type of massage noir? right? Where are those places that, that I benefit from? And where are the places that I'm still complicit, right? right? Because if I can own my own shit, then there's a chance, right? That when someone calls me in or even someone calls me out, I don't get defensive, right? right. Because far too often we say, well, I'm a supporter of Black folks. And I'm like, yeah, you didn't know who Emma de Graffin was, but yet you're, you're talking <laughs> about intersectionality all the time. So clearly you're still complicit in the erasure of X, Y, and Z, right? And that's the hard right. one, right? Especially when we like to call ourselves woke, right? Because the term woke actually doesn't mean anything. And I think the other space for black and brown folks, and this is not just for them, it's for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. I ask people this all the time in my talks to close out. I say, how many of you have been taught that you should love yourself? And everyone raises their hand. And then I go, well, how many of you have been taught how? And almost 95% of the hands go down. There is a difference between being told you should love yourself and knowing how to do that. What that looks like. We live in a world where even white men are told they're not enough, right? right? You're not tall enough, short enough, black enough, white enough, your hair is not curly enough, straight enough, it's not blonde enough, whatever, right? How can I even come close to loving myself when I'm looking for the love of others through their eyes, right? And, right. Baldwin, and Baldwin, he says this, he says, love is not possible when you're searching for it through the eyes of another. Mm. Right. And if if you think about the culture that we're existing in with trying to get social media likes and all of these things, we're searching for an external validation of ourselves. Right. Which makes it almost impossible for us to love each other. So the work that I want people to do is to go, what do I need to actually really love all of me, love the things about myself that I really am insecure about? And then, can I start to talk about those things publicly? Yes. Because as adults, so many young kids are struggling with the exact same things that we dealt with. So, how can we as adults start to model high levels of vulnerability? Yeah. So, to please talk about the, the things that we're afraid of and start to stop being so ashamed of ourselves. Yeah. Because we teach other kids shame, right? Whenever a kid oh, asks right. you, a, you a question and you don't answer it, you've inculcated an idea that that conversation is a shameful one right so i think that that is my ask of all of us is to learn how to do that in ways and stop handing down shame
0: yeah i love that whole concept something i talk a lot about in my book and also just my my work on self-care in the through the lens of feminism is seeing taking care of yourself as a relatively radical act in a world that has taught us in a million different little ways that we're not enough. It is, in fact, part of activism is caring for oneself to be able to care for others as well. It's a tricky message, though. It's a tricky road to toe because we want folks to have radical empathy for others along the way. But just like the suffrage movement example, me taking care of myself doesn't prevent you from taking care of yourself or me taking care of you either.
1: I'm better equipped to show up for you if I've shown up for myself first. You know, when I had first told the, the world that I was gay, because um, I don't like the term coming out, um, one of the things that I was doing is I was still trafficking in a lot of internalized homophobia. Mm. So it was not possible for me to be a true advocate for LGBT inclusion when deep down, I still hated myself for being gay because I hadn't done that internal work, right? Mm. So. Again, like I think I've become a better advocate, and I've actually started to change my advocacy and go, oh, it's actually about women, right? If I didn't do that right. work myself, I would have never got to this yeah. point, you know? Because I used to say things like, I'm gay, but I'm not a fag," right? Because Ooh. I knew that there was a certain level of privilege by showing up in the world as stereotypically heterosexual, right? And even though folks would know that I was gay, they were comfortable with my gender performance in such a way that they affirmed it, Right. right. Like passing who, yeah. Privilege. Yeah. Exactly. Right? right. But but I was still being OK with them marginalizing and talking about men's whose gender performance didn't didn't match mine. But because I hadn't done the work, I thought that that was an OK way to show up. Yeah. So I think for all of us, like we've got to search ourselves and, and go, where are the places that I am still falling short of how I want to be in the world?
0: I love that. That's a good takeaway for all of us listening and for the men who might not be listening to this podcast, but whose lovely uh, lady counterparts or sisters or mothers might be listening, which is to do some internal work ourselves. we got to do our homework when it comes to educating ourselves on the oppression that others face that we can't directly relate to because we have privilege of some kind. But also... Coupling that with self-acceptance, coupling that with doing the work of radical self-love. And I think that's a good actionable next step for everyone listening to this. What's one of the texts, if you had to pick one, that you would put on everybody's must-read list for this year?
1: It would be the book that changed my life. It's Bell Hook's Feminist Theory from Margin to Center. Um, And I recommend people read it twice. The first time that you read it, and I'm not saying that I'm like everyone else, but I missed a lot of it. Right. You know, so I would say read it twice. And the second time, own your shit. So oftentimes we read books. Right. And there's an analysis in there. And we don't want to own that Bell's talking about us. Right. You know, (laughs) she is like she's talking about men. She's talking about white people. Like, don't go, oh, well, I don't do those things. No, you do. Right. So I just the example I'll give you is I read uh, Roxane Gay's book Hunger. Right. Mm. It was such a transformative book. And toward the end of the book, she talks about how when she gets on airplanes, because of her size, right, people look at her and look away with the hopes that she doesn't sit by them. Now, what is true is that I've done that to someone whose body I've deemed illegitimate, right? So in those moments, can I own my own culpability, my complicity in the oppression of someone? If you can't do that, then when you read a book like From Margin to Center, you missed it. And I think for us liberals, for us progressives, I think it's so hard for us to actually go, no, like there's a role that I play in all of this too. It's very easy for for us to point the finger at folks who live in the South and go, well, the South is racist and homophobic. Well, actually no, racism and homophobia lives in New York and California too, (laughs) right? But we love to think of ourselves in a certain way. And what I often find is that there's high levels of intellectual dishonesty Amongst those of us who see ourselves on the left. And it's why you don't often see folks of color working in solidarity with white people who are on the left. It's because there's such a level of distrust. And you know, so I love to watch Bravo, right? I love to watch Bravo. I love to watch Million Dollar Listing and Beverly Hills, blah blah blah, right? But then I'll watch the show and I'll go, damn, there's not one black person ever in this show unless they're working, right? But these individuals would swear to you that they're liberal and and that they're all of these things. There's a learning when you close down the distance, right? There's a learning when you sit in proximity with mm-hmm. people who are marginalized. There's a learning when you're actively in, investing in, in understanding what their lives are, right? So we have to stop being so intellectually dishonest to think that you get it or, or that you care about us. But no, you really don't because your lives are so distant from ours and that you actually you know nothing about the interior lives. Right, and black and brown folk. Like, Truthfully, I knew nothing about the interior lives of women until I read. And I had to read and read a lot. And I got to keep reading, right? I'm actually reading a book by um, Sarah Moore Grimke. Um, mm. She's got the quote, I ask no favor for my sex. I only ask that men take their feet off our necks, right? She was born in 1793. Her mm-hmm. analysis is like unbelievable. For her to be writing that in the 1800s, I'm like, wow. You know what Uh I mean? So, like, we've got to really invest in understanding what the struggle of another is, if we even can come close to thinking that we can be a solidarity partner.
0: Definitely. And part of that means letting go of the good person identity. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I couldn't possibly be curious about my own shortcomings or shadow spots because I'm a good person. It's just like stamping yourself with the woke label. It is a false promise. Yeah. I I see that a lot
1: because it's idiosyncratic and it actually means nothing also. Right. Like what does it mean? Like it's individual. If you to ask people, are you a bad person? No one would say yes. No one would say yes. So (laughs) all good people, if that's the case, why is there so much oppression happening? Why is there so much poverty? Why is there so much homelessness? Why is there so much hate? No, like the term goodness absolutely means nothing.
0: Yeah. Well, Wade, I appreciate your time and your brilliance that you brought to this conversation. My one last question for you is if you do us the honors of telling me a little bit more about your men's gender equality development leadership program that caught my eye. I'd love to learn. How do people find that? How do we send all of the men to that?
1: <laughs> so what it is, it's a training module. And the goal is to take men on a journey to understand what it means to be as much as I can understand what it means to be a woman, you know, yeah. in the, specifically in the workplace. So it starts out with two months of really intensive work. And then I bring women into the conversation to really make this much more real. Right. Mm-hmm. But the first two months is to create the conditions for men, to be honest, for us to own our bullshit in a very, quote unquote, psychological safe space. And then for me to go, okay, now that we know a little bit about what we don't know, let's actually bring women into the conversation and let's be really curious and thoughtful and actually hear from them the -hmm. ways that we have truly shown up. And then the last two months is a co-creation of saying that if I work at X, what can I do? What's within my remit that I can control that works to remove the actual barriers in the workplace? But I want women to feel as if when they're in these spaces, they're the leaders, that they're guiding us. Right. And, and that the men are the actual workers. But we've got to start there by doing the work first and not just just going, hey, women, tell me what I should do. No, like there's a there's a lot of work that has to happen first. And you can email me at Wade at Wade dot com. Always email Stephanie at Wade A. dot com. Also, um, she manages my entire life. Or you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Instagram. I try to be as accessible as possible. I'm doing some amazing work with Time's Up and Me Too. I'm doing some amazing work with UN Women. I'm truly grateful that I've been given this opportunity and I try to not screw it up. There will be times that I do. The reason I also put feminists on my profiles, because I want people to feel as if they can call me in. Like I want people to know that that I'm willing to be open to high levels of accountability. So if there's something that I've said during this this interview, email me and be like, "Hey, yeah, think about this." Like, and I'm okay with the calling in. It.
0: Yeah, definitely. I love it. Well, thank you for walking the walk. Thank you for focusing on gender. I think that's a really interesting history of the pivot towards gender, and I'm so glad you're in the movement and in this conversation because we all have work to do. <laughs> Clearly, we need all the help we can get. So thanks, Wade, for joining us on the Boss Up Podcast. I'll drop links to all of your social media handles and those emails you mentioned so our listeners can get in touch. And yeah, I appreciate you.
1: No problem. Have a great day.
0: If you want to learn more about Wade Davis, head to wadeadavis.com or check out the links in today's show notes. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move Moment of the Week.
2: This is Laquanda checking in from Rochester, New York. Just want to share a mega boss move with my bossed up sisters and community. So last week Thursday, I submitted my resume for a position that I assumed had closed. And I went out on a limb by submitting my resume because the position or the job posting was actually no longer Posted, But I took a chance and emailed the HR director directly with my resume and a bossing cover letter. I received a phone call from her later that evening, letting me know that I had just made it under the gun and my resume and cover letter were too impressive for her to pass up. She squeezed me in for an interview on Friday at 1230 which I think went very, very well. As I was writing her a thank you email after the interview, she called me and offered me the position. We're talking about a less than 24-hour turnaround time from posting my resume for this position and receiving an offer. Talking about real boss moves, that is a boss move.
0: Yes, boss, I am cheering you on and so proud of you and so thrilled that you took the time to call in your boss move so we can all celebrate you and this wonderful achievement. If you've got a boss move to share or have a career conundrum you want me to unpack on the podcast next, give my hotline a ring right now at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. Oh, and as a quick reminder, it is April 30th, the last day to take advantage of this month's Bossed Up book pre-order perk. So if you head to bossedup.org slash book and pre-order my Bossed Up book now, which is less than a month away from publication you can still gain access for free to my fan favorite online negotiation course, Get Your Money. It's a step-by-step course that walks you through exactly how to handle the salary conversation, whether it comes up in the form of a new job offer or if you're negotiating a raise or a pay bump with your current employer. Head to bossuporg book today to make sure you pre-order before the month is out, and then click on the Claim Your Perk button at the bottom of the page to gain your free access to my online negotiation course. And then while you're there, check out all the Bossed Up book tour stops that are so close to happening. With the arrival of May tomorrow, it is going to be book publication month before we know it. And I can't wait to celebrate with so many badass members of the Bossed Up community in DC, New York, LA, San Fran, all over the place. So make sure to register today and spread the word so we can bring even more boss besties into the fold throughout the course of the tour. Until next time, keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose and together we'll lift as we climb. Let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Jahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And boston.org slash speak up.